Hi, welcome to the second Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. On the show, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Duncan Brown, author, researcher, and government advisor, and most recently, panelist at the Womanthology Liftoff webinar that took place on the 16th of July. Duncan brings us up to speed with the inclusion and diversity latest in the midst of the easing of lockdown measures and the implications for employment. We also meet Jennifer Titsopoulos, who is founding member of the New York office of the business design and innovation strategy firm, Board of Innovation. She shares details of her career to date and the work she's doing around the low-touch economy following COVID-19. So, what exactly is the low-touch economy and what does it mean for the way you live and work? We will also be meeting Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who is going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. So now, we welcome to the show Dr Duncan Brown. Hi, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining us. For those who haven't yet had the chance to catch the Womanthology Liftoff webinar we ran a couple of weeks back on the 16th of July to mark the return of Womanthology, please could you tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do? Uh, Sure. They missed something. It was great, wasn't it? But um, yeah, Um, so I'm an employment and pay conditions advisor. Uh, I kind of span the boundaries between working with individual employers and working on government policy. So I've worked for research organisations, I Institute for Employment Studies, I was at the CIPD for five years. But a lot of my work is focused on working with a full range of employers, really, Fiona, on, um, on how to practically make a difference, in, particularly in these areas. Uh, like uh, gender, gender pay and uh, gender progression and representation. Now, it's worth reminding everybody here that you can view the Liftoff webinar and it's available on our YouTube channel and we will also include links in the show notes. What were the key takeaways for you from the event? Oh, tremendous enthusiasm uh, for the subject as well as you. (laughs) And... um, yeah, just uh, perhaps a bit of frustration at, um, and uh, even anger at the way in which uh, the COVID crisis has has been uh, very much managed by men and a lot of the economic response we're seeing reflects that, I think. And although to some extent, as I'll maybe go on to say a bit later, there's a lot of opportunities here, I think, to reframe uh, the way in which uh, we organise work uh, and reframe that on a more egalitarian and equal basis. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the sides are at the moment. That's not the direction of travel. Now, there was lots of brilliant discussion at the event and we unfortunately ran out of time to answer all the questions. So would it be OK to pick up on those now? So of course, yeah. I've got a question from Anne who says... With Black Lives Matter rightly coming to the fore recently, how do we make sure that a hierarchy of diversity doesn't emerge with one group, for example, women, going down the priority list as another rises? 
How do we adopt an intersectional approach which helps all disadvantaged groups? What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a brilliant question, and uh, it's one I'm often asked by heads of diversity when um, you know, particularly in the current climate, their budgets are maybe getting uh, cut. And they're kind of thinking, well, what can we carry on doing and how do we prioritise things? The good news or the bad news, depending on how you look at it, is that these uh, agendas are all uh, intersectional. They do interact. And therefore, the organisations and employers that are good on diversity from a gender perspective also are very likely to be uh, good from an ethnicity, disability and every other uh, group perspective. Um, so, yeah, the evidence is that either or approaches don't really work. And if you, you know, if you just look at the figures on the detrimental impact of how COVID has been managed, um, that's evident. Uh, for young people, it's evident for female workers, it's evident for low-paid workers, and it's evident for BAME workers and employees. Um, and so these agendas overlap so heavily, um, particularly, say, if we look at the low-paid, um, where the lack of protection for them uh, has been shown so strongly in the crisis um, in the major categories of employment there, carers, cleaners, etc. Um, Two thirds of, of those workers are females and uh, BAME staff are heavily overrepresented. So in the sense, I think the lady asking that question, rather than worrying about it, should be pleased, I think, that Black Lives Matter has given a real fill up uh, to this, uh, to the diversity agenda as a whole, and as well as we've obviously got gender pay reporting on a compulsory basis. Despite the suspension, we got that in statute, we're going to get ethnicity pay reporting at some point, and hopefully now uh, that will be very soon. All of these agendas, uh, we need to be progressing in unison, really, to create the kind of equal, fair organisations we all want to see. Now, in April, we collaborated with you on a consultation response for the Women in Equalities Committee. Can you remind us what the headlines were? Yeah, although I've already criticised government for their response to the COVID crisis. Uh, here we had the Women in Equality Committee very early on uh, launching an investigation of the impact and the unequal impact of uh, COVID-19 on people with protected characteristics and they invited uh, and have been gathering uh, evidence from many different sources and as you said you and I um, chucked a, a few thousand words their way uh, to give them more of that evidence and I think the key message was is that yes the pandemic is having a, a disproportionate effect that although from a health perspective Basically, overweight men, uh, older overweight men are most at risk. If you look at people in employment, the jobs that have been most at risk uh, are predominantly female-held uh, jobs like uh, social care workers uh, and nurses. Um, and uh, also, from an economic perspective, the people, uh, if you look at the categories of employees who are most likely to have been furloughed, and now we're seeing redundancies going up as the uh, full furloughing 
uh, winds down, again, it tends to be, it's tending to be towards low-paid, predominantly female uh, employees who are getting uh, disproportionately affected. And so I think the tenor of a lot of data we had in that response, Fiona, was that what we've really got to watch is that we not only don't uh, not progress the agenda that we had on uh, women's equality, but that we actually go backwards. And um, particularly, I think, a response similar to the sort of austerity that we saw in public spending after uh, the last recession in 2008 uh, had a, there's no doubt, that had an, a, a bad effect on equality, really, um, and uh, widened income gaps. Um, and... Um, yeah, we need to see the reverse. We need to see more uh, legislative intervention to uh, promote equality, uh, because the, otherwise the risk is that a cost-driven uh, emphasis to how employers respond to the recession uh, we're now entering risks really damaging the progress that we've made. Now, there's been some fascinating press around the UK government's response to COVID-19 and the impacts on women. So, in the Financial Times on the 22nd of July, former Home Secretary Amber Rudd was interviewed and she said that it was, quote, extraordinary that 97% of Downing Street's coronavirus press conferences were led by male ministers. I can't quite believe that statistic. Can that be right in this day and age? Yeah, there, there, there's been some great headlines. I like the one from the... Um, the uh, survey that was out last week about UK working mothers are, are sacrificial lambs, I think the terminology was in the uh, coronavirus crisis, uh, which focused, that survey focused in really on the breakdown in childcare, uh, with women taking the vast bulk of, of childcare responsibilities. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think um, we've, we've clearly seen that. Um, one of my friends was relating to me the story of that as a man, I can go and uh, get my beard uh, cut quite uh, easily, um, and um, but uh, a woman can't have her, uh, if she goes to the beautician, can't have her eyebrows threaded, even though the procedure apparently is done from behind, uh, so it's not a face-to-face -face procedure. I mean, what better evidence is there of regulations written by men for men, really? Um, and it is disappointing. And I, I saw Caroline Noakes as well, um, who now chairs that Women and Equalities uh, Committee that we uh, um, that we responded to. Um, she's been saying that she was disappointed about the gendered response, although interestingly, none of them have commented about the suspension of the gender pay reporting requirements uh, just a week before uh, the deadline uh, at the start of April. Um, and um, so it, it, what that's done is it's meant only half of employers uh, have actually uploaded their gender pay stats for this year. So we've lost the whole sequence, really, of pressure uh, mounting up on employers to report and close their their gender pay gaps. Um, uh, so it, it's much more than just um, uh, just male ministers. It's uh, it's a whole gendered response, I think, in 
uh, what we've seen. But having said that, on, you know, to give it an optimistic tone to this crisis, if there is um, light in, in such a horrendous situation that we've all been through, I think there really is an opportunity to rethink. And I saw Matthew Taylor, who was the author of a, a report that's been very influential on employment legislation, on the good work agenda, which the government had pretty much picked up wholesale. Um, and he set out about 50 measures there to improve uh, work quality and working conditions, uh, particularly for low-paid uh, workers um, in, uh, in unstable and insecure work. And Taylor is said, you know, that the crisis has highlighted the contribution of workers in these situations. And the employment bill that we're due to get sometime shortly, um, which will incorporate more, there's already some aspects of this uh, plan have been uh, implemented, but that should uh, give us a lot more and uh, he, he sounds pretty bullish in terms of the enhanced protection uh, and legislation uh, to benefit uh, these groups of workers that he's expecting to see in there now. What should womanthology readers be doing to ensure that gender balance doesn't backslide? Yeah, I think there's, there's clear, I guess I'm just talking there about the state's response. I think we need uh, responses at three levels here. We need the state... Um, we need employers and we need, um, we need individual responses from all of us and, and taking that responsibility. Um, I guess uh, many of the folks listening in to, um, uh, to your webinar were, um, had some kind of employment responsibility and there I think um, we've seen um, the need to take a really comprehensive approach there's no single initiatives here are going to suddenly deliver us diversity and equality. It's about a wide-ranging set of measures uh, over the long term that's really going to make progress. And my sense is here now, because of the situation we're facing, there's going to have to be progress from um, the kind of softly, softly voluntary unconscious bias training initiatives that many organisations have been taking. Uh, to more direct compulsion in the organisation, to things like uh, blind recruitment, um, compulsory uh, representative panels, making selection and promotion decisions. Um, those are the sort of initiatives that I think we're going to have to see more of if we're going to see continuing progress. And I think as on, on the individual front, it's, it's for, about all of us really standing up for this, speaking out, calling out uh, where we see it and supporting the measures that are going to progress this. Um, because I think if, you know, if our cultures are more accepting and welcoming uh, and we as individuals within those of diversity, uh, that's going to keep the pressure up on uh, employers to respond. And finally, Duncan, what's coming up for you? What are you working on and what are you excited about? Um, goodness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've um, got a, a, both uh, employment uh, work and um, uh, pay work on at the moment. I think the thing I'm most excited about is, a, is an initiative uh, looking at um, care workers' pay um, and... Um, 
yeah, the Liberal Democrats have already um, adopted a policy which um, I've been advocating to uh, get pay care workers onto NHS terms and conditions of service. And um, we've already seen uh, the government um, do a couple of very quick U-turns when uh, care workers in, in care homes were excluded from um, uh, the additional or death benefit that was given to NHS workers uh, during the crisis and uh, subsequently that was extended to them and um, so yeah I really hope I think that their their actions and what care workers have been doing has been even more remarkable I think than usual over the last four months and so to see the improvement in their terms and conditions I think would be amazing so I'm pretty excited about that so far so good. Duncan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as ever. You take care. Hello, my name is Ines Santos. I am the associate editor for Womanfology, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about our new written issue, which is called Gender Balance 2.0. The stories include Jenna Norman, the public affairs officer at Women's Budget Group, who talks about how COVID-19 has impacted men and women differently and what the UK government could be doing to tackle this issue. Applications engineer Samantha Magowan talks about the role of engineers as key workers during lockdown. She also shares what it was like to be awarded the IET's Mary George Memorial Prize for Apprentices at last year's Young Woman Engineer of the Year Awards. When colleagues had suggested the idea, her initial reaction had been to laugh and say she had no chance of winning. We're so glad she was wrong. Catherine Wilson, the head of employment for Carers UK, informs us about a government consultation that could provide carers with a week of unpaid leave per year. She has asked for the help of Womanology readers. You can make the difference here. Also, Rosalind Brack, the director of Maternity Action, talks about the need to re-examine UK government support for pregnant women and new mothers as a result of COVID-19. She also shares why the UK government should adopt Maria Miller MP's Pregnancy and Maternity Redundancy Protection Bill. We have a few weeks to convince the government to adopt the bill as their own and pass the legislation. We'd love for you to get involved. Sarah Coles, a personal finance analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, will touch upon a really important issue the gender saving and investment gap which is leaving women sometimes thousands of pounds worse off. She shares the reasons behind this and what you can do to improve your financial health, whistle we're all feeling the strain. Finally, Kieran Sparrow-Hawk, founder and CEO of the MyCognition app, tells us about the app that improves cognitive fitness and how this is important during the pandemic and how it's helping women. Do check out our website www.womanfology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all from me.
Jennifer Titsopoulos is founding member of Board of Innovation in New York. Board of Innovation is a business design and innovation strategy firm with offices in New York, Amsterdam, Antwerp and Singapore. The company helps large corporates leverage their core strengths to find opportunities for growth and deliver return on innovation. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Please, could you start by telling us about your career to date and what made you want to work in consultancy? Yeah. Hi, Fiona. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today, Um, especially since we're all working from lockdown. And I'm currently, even though the American accent, sheltering in place in London uh, out of the city center. So really excited to be here today. Um, One of the things that really started my career, interestingly enough, one of those people who always knew what they wanted to be. I went to high school. I actually got inspired by The Apprentice, so I have to thank Donald Trump, unfortunately, to how I'm here. Um, But it got me really into thinking about marketing and branding, and I went to business school right out of college, applied to one university, and went to get my degree in marketing and communication. So had a pretty clear path from the start that I wanted to move into the space of brand strategy and advertising, and I spent about 10 years in that industry really working in advertising in Boston, in New York, in Australia. I had the fortune of launching Carnival Cruise Lines Down Under and spent a few fabulous years living in Sydney uh, with some of the best best times ever. I uh, was also fortunate enough, I, I don't know if you watched this film, but get to do a brand production with Fox Studios of Chipmunks 3, Chipwrecked, <laughs> filmed on the Carnival Cruise Ship. So, yeah, one of my claims to fame. Uh, but I think... Realistically, I went from advertising, an industry that's really struggled over the past few years, an industry that timelines have been cut, the way that you look at the world and understand human instincts has been cut out of the process. And I thought there was more of an opportunity to have an impact outside of a a smiling advertisement on a cruise ship, right? And the first step I made outside of my career, the the pivot I made, because I found it really, really difficult to leave advertising. No one wanted those skills in applicable industries. I don't, I don't know if you've seen that yourself, but it's a really tough industry to leave and there are no adults in the field, or at least it felt like at the time. So I had the opportunity to move into a uh, insights and futures company within an advertising holding company. I went to Sparks and Honey, which is part of Omnicom. And if you haven't heard of it, it's one of the most fascinating places to work uh, I've ever heard of. It has a live debate every day to talk about with the whole agency, and they invite about 100 guests a week to talk about how has the world changed in the past 24 hours. And they use a debate-style format to get to trends and insights and use those insights to then help brands like Pepsi and Johnson & Johnson and Air New Zealand to think about what the future beholds. So it it was my first step kind of outside of the traditional advertising model and a pivot into baby steps of consulting with trends and insights. Through that job, I realized how much I loved working in that space. And since I've been really studying um, strategic foresight and futures, and the next best thing was to join an innovation firm or an innovation consultancy. I heard about Board of Innovation, which is the current company I'm at. They were looking for a founder role to open up their New York presence. I actually heard about it through a women's network. There's a fascinating women's group that really supports one another based out of the U.S., but I believe it's in the U.K. as well. Um, called Women in Innovation. So other women helping each other out by hearing about roles, and uh, that was the best way for me to get in. Somebody get lended their um, their recommendation to me, and I applied for the position. And 
you know, I thought they hired me for all of this energy and creativity I brought, but they said, uh, we're really looking for someone as American as you. So I got the position for being a token American, which to be fair, I was quite insulted by. I thought I was this international Australian with a Greek last name, but uh, I was that token American who they, they needed as part of a Belgium company. So that's really how I got to Board of Innovation. Uh, and that happened over a year ago. Now I've been with the company. What sort of work does Board of Innovation do? Yeah, so Board of Innovation is fascinating. It brought me into this place of having more of a tangible impact on all of those future scenarios I had been planning. I mean, I was telling uh, PepsiCo that we're all going to be eating insects in 20, 30 years. And you kind of get bummed after a while when companies don't start activating on some of those big futures that you're considering. So I made the switch to Board of Innovation, which uses more of a practical lens on innovation. So they're really all about return on innovation. So no more innovation theater. It's not about the sticky notes and the big uh, PowerPoint presentations. It's really about even incremental ideas. And so the company really focuses in on business design. And I've really been able to embrace a whole innovation methodology just around business model innovation and coming up with the viability of the solutions that other companies might design into market. So working closely with uh, Fortune 500 brands, large corporations to help them build better business ideas and business models and ecosystems, actually, um, now more than ever, to make sure that their products are successful once they launch. Shortly after the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Board of Innovation produced some work around the low-touch economy. Please, could you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it's been four months now, and we've been in this lockdown situation. Depending on where you guys are listening in from around the world, you might be facing a different situation than I am when I look outside my windows in the UK, where people are kind of going about their day-to-day as normal, and the, the rest of the US where I was coming from is still pretty much in lockdown mode. And we immediately, as a company, I think we put it out maybe three weeks after the first lockdown, decided that this was going to have a long-term effect on not only consumers, but how businesses operate. So we coined this term, the low-touch economy, which is about how the health restrictions and the lockdowns are causing us both in a business and a consumer sense to fear interacting with others. So how do we communicate, how do we interact in a world where we're scared to come in proximity with another human being? And that was the basis of the low-touch economy, and we've really been examining the knock-on effects of the behavior changes that are still happening today. The longer we're in lockdown, the more we become adapted to these habits that we're forming, work from home, uh, digital first technologies. I think my grandma is actually buying things online for the first time ever. And these are new learned behaviors that we're really tracking to see what is the long-term impact on businesses and our society as a whole. What were the headline findings of the research? Yeah, so many. Um, It is a really long uh, amount of research. And since we're in innovation, we're constantly updating it. So it's not a static piece of information, but as the world evolves, we're learning new things and figuring out new opportunities. And to me, some of the the biggest things that have come to, to light is really this idea of how vulnerable a business can be. So the businesses that this really shed a light on were the ones that were too weak to uh, pivot successfully. Now, I'm really cautious of this idea of pivot because it means a lot of things to different people. But the fast mover advantage, those businesses that were able to make a quick adjustment in the market are the ones that are actually being successful. And those are usually the startups or those smaller businesses who are used to working that way. 
we're still waiting for those big winners to come up in that Fortune 500, those big corporate players who are still struggling to test the, the test out the waters and maybe hoping that this will go away. So that's one of the ones is this fast mover advantage. The second thing that I think is a strategy for success in this time is adopting digital. So a digital is an answer to being a fast mover, but it's also an enabler. It's the first time we've ever seen technology being probably the most stable of all industries. So regulations are changing, uh, consumer behaviors are changing. Technology is actually pretty stable right now. It's your best bet to change your behaviors uh, and try something with AI or um, that chatbot you always want to do. So I think that's really interesting that that's usually the most disruptive space and it's starting to stabilize right now. Now, the third one that I would mention, and I, I have four of these, the third one is about designing for low-touch interactions. So let's take digital aside. We're still humans. Um, markets are still opening up. We find really interesting our businesses that are starting to create low-touch or safe spaces for their consumers and their customers. Could be their employees as well if you have a vulnerable workforce. One of those being uh, premium spaces where you rent out the entire salon for the day. That was my Boston accent that came up. Um, but you rent out the entire beauty salon for the day and you have that entire premium experience. They're even starting to add in COVID testing. So when you go to a salon, you're getting these additional healthcare um, tracking, which I think is going to really change a lot of different industries, including the healthcare space. So those low touch interactions I find fascinating. The drive through everything. So we're seeing drive through um, grocery stores, drive through hospitals. My colleagues tracked a drive through strip club. So everything from the obscene to the everyday, every industry is really designing around this. And uh, I guess fourth, fourth strategy that I have to leave you with is this idea of businesses being able to redefine their value proposition. So the companies that are really struggling are the ones that haven't thought, hey, have my customers impacted? Is what I offer to them the same as what it was before? And how might I enter into a different market with my strengths? So those are the four really key things we've been tracking to see how have players been successful in this time. The research also identified numerous ripple effects from COVID-19. What were these and what are their implications for businesses and consumers? I think the ripple effects is what separates this topic of the low-touch economy from things like the new normal. It assumes that there are going to be waves that start to occur after this first pandemic um, or this first stay-at-home lockdown. So it might mean that certain markets are going to return back to lockdown as we test out what it means to be back outside. And while we're going up and down and having this slow and bumpy road to recovery, you're going to see that economic divide continue to uh basically grow apart. So we're really seeing the people that this impacts are going to be those that have been laid off, which will continue to happen. We're tracking the next wave of a potential recession in different markets. Obviously, the U.S. has already entered into one, unfortunately. Um, we're also thinking about how you how you add on top of it the political unrest. I mean, certain mar markets are really unstable right now. We're entering into a, an election. Other markets are having uh, crises of their own. And obviously, we had the Black Lives Matter movement, which is so, so important to our times. And just really thinking through how all of this has a knock-on effect is still uh, unprecedented yet. In your opinion, what are the differences between the economic impacts of COVID-19 on women and on men? Yeah, well, we were talking about this slightly before we jumped on to the courting, um, but I would have to echo a lot of the things that you said 
unfortunately, women are going to be more at risk to the impacts of the crisis and its ripple effects than men. It's just the society we still live in, and it's obviously not a, a blanket statement. It's not going to impact everyone's situation. But one of the things we've been seeing, um, first and foremost, is the work from home life. We've been tracking how males in general exert a bit of a dominance at home, even if they don't mean it. They've taken the prime location in the house, the one bedroom with the closed door. The women have to then cook, clean, since we've had to let go of the nannies and the cleaners, um, and ultimately have to babysit, teach, and do their full-time jobs. So now you're seeing this kind of full divide. Um, that will have a ripple effect. So imagine now you feel your job is at risk. You have to work harder to keep your job, but ultimately you have these additional tasks of being a, a traditional or a strong woman, uh, what it entails. So I think that's a concern definitely to be aware of. We also saw, unfortunately, with a lot of businesses that females in non-essential roles were a big majority of the layoffs. So you have these kind of more administrative roles or potentially marketing-related roles that were deemed non-essential and this time. I would argue they're probably more essential than ever, to be fair. Uh, but for whatever reason, whoever's making those decisions, there was a big wave of layoffs in women that were in certain roles deemed uh, unessential this time. So we have to consider that in terms of putting us behind in that pay gap. And then the third thing that we've been tracking that I, I do find really interesting is how masculinity plays a part into the COVID situation. So depending on the culture that you're in, the idea of wearing a mask could be seen as a, a mask, uh, anti-masculine trait or feminine. So we're actually seeing symbolism change based on what the COVID crisis means to us. So um, that obviously plays a role into your beliefs and other political systems, but men are most likely to not want to wear the mask in public, um, which can have a knock-on effect as well. What's your advice for businesses who have found the need to pivot as a result of COVID-19? Well, I mentioned the technology, embracing digital enablers. I mentioned rethinking your value proposition uh, and questioning whether it's still accurate today. And then also thinking of those new revenue streams around a premium, low-touch model. But I think if I had to take it back, uh, fully back to what you should do as an individual, it would be to take a step away from yourself, away from your business, and self-assess and reflect. Because we're moving really, really quickly right now, and a lot of that is reactive. So we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. And I would really challenge you to pause, take a step back. Um, if you check out the Low Touch Economy Report, we have some reflection tools on your business that you can self-assess with. But challenge yourself to say, where are the biggest gaps and where are the quickest wins? How can you quickly make an adjustment given your existing strengths? Don't try to completely disrupt yourself right now. You've got too much going on. Don't try to reinvent your business or yourself, uh, whatever good intentions we had four months ago before this lockdown happened. So finally, what's coming up next for you and Board of Innovation? What are you excited about? Yeah, I actually, this, you'll be the first to hear about this because I got approval just to tell you. Um, you know, we've been doing this talk about the low-touch economy for the last three to four months, and it's more relevant now than ever. But as an innovation firm, we really need to be thinking about what's those next ripple effects. So our chosen topic, and we're still working through the research and the right angle for it, but is really going to be playing on the right side of history. So we want to now coach the corporate clients and the businesses that we work with on being on the right side of history after this pandemic fully leaves us or trans it transforms us permanently. 
Um, and that's going to look at things like redesigning ecosystems of business models to create beneficial partnerships and collaborations between businesses that will have an impact on the circular economy and sustainability, as well as uh, obviously the gender gap and uh, any diversity and inclusion that falls within it. So we're really trying to wrap it up, but coaching our clients to be on the right side of business is our provocation that we're trying to tackle. Uh huh. So a huge opportunity, really. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge there is to prove to clients or to businesses that it's a viable idea. And, you know, the sustainability has been a topic on a lot of people's minds, diversity and inclusion. It's it's one thing that uh, to encourage it, but sometimes we really struggle getting our clients to put pen to paper and sign the dotted line because they can't see the short term value. So as innovators, we believe we can have an impact by challenging our clients to see that this is a business savvy strategy to think about um, having a better impact on the world itself. Uh-huh. And in terms of your, the people who are the audience and the, the clients, then actually a lot of clients are going to be women as well. Yeah, yeah I think definitely a lot of clients are women as well. Uh, unfortunately, not enough, definitely, from what I see. But I think the opportunity is for us to help each other out. So when you have opportunities like this to pay it forward, first and foremost, to other females, to other underprivileged groups, I think it's going to be more important now than ever. And when we're talking about it internally at Board of Innovation, one of the things that we've realized is you can't evaluate profiles comparatively. You need to really rewrite your job descriptions and how you hire for those roles so that you know you can't compare a, a female who's been told a certain, to act a certain way all of her life to compete against somebody that might have had a little bit more privilege. So that's really, you have to change the way you look at two comparative individuals applying for that same role. Jennifer, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Take care. And now to mark the launch of the new Womanthology branding and website, we're putting out a global call for your selfies celebrating women at work. Hashtag Women in the Picture is a new global photography prize. We want to shine a light on the experiences of working women around the world. We're looking for selfies that capture the challenges and the triumphs, the awe-inspiring multiplicity of women's roles in a rapidly changing world. Now this can be your paid job or it can be volunteering, it can be any kind of work. The competition's free to enter. You need to enter on Twitter or you can enter on Instagram and you need to use the hashtag women in the picture. Now the entry deadline is 23.59 UK time on Friday the 14th of August 2020 and we'll be announcing the results on social media on Monday the 17th of August 2020. The terms and conditions are over on the website so please do check those out before submitting your entry. Good luck! sadly that's all we have time for for this episode thank you so much for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share the link for the show on social media and subscribe your feedback is really important so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app do join us in the next episode where we'll be hearing from a variety of female pioneers in the field of health who are the women who are helping the healthcare system move forward and innovate For now, take care and stay safe.